It's August 26, 2015. Our message tonight is called 33 Days or Years. It'll be kind of a choice. I want to read you a scripture, a scripture that's become pretty familiar to us in this congregation. It is uh, 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. By the way, how many of you in here are in the class? Wow. I'm going to do your homework for you if you listen. And those that are not here, well, there's, there's benefits to coming to all services. Amen. Okay, so in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. One of the things that Jesus Christ did, one of the things that Israel did, one of the things that we, the body of Christ, do today is in the midst of our frailty, in the midst of our brokenness, we shine forth life. This gives everyone the opportunity to see that the life did not originate with us. They see something precious inside of something that is fading, something that is flawed. And this causes them to give glory to God rather than glory to men. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always, somebody say always, always, always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is one of those passages that we could never stop preaching on. We would never drain it dry of all of its significance. We would never gain Everything from it that can be gained, it's more than a 70-sided jewel. And many times we've done that. Tonight I simply wanted to read it as a reminder as we go to Leviticus 12. While you're in Leviticus 12, I want to remind also those that are taking the advanced combat class that if you were given a chapter, like maybe the second chapter of Acts, for instance, and you were told to outline it, and... You began writing down all of the topics that were addressed in it, particularly in Peter's sermon. And then you looked at a very good commentary after you had analyzed it yourself. One of the things you would find are the cultural significance of the topics that he addressed. And you would find out specifically that Peter did not just fall into a trance and the Holy Ghost speak through him. The culture that Peter was from, the way in which Peter was raised, the language that Peter spoke, all of those cultural forces helped and contributed to what the Holy Spirit brought out of him. So it just so happens that on the day of Pentecost, certain things were associated with the day of Pentecost. And Peter happened to have chosen those things to preach about as led by the Holy Spirit. Well, when you read Leviticus 12, One of the things that happens to you is you can get caught up in the foreign nature of it. You can get caught up in 
this many days for that and questions about boys and girls and, and you can miss something in it. This defined a culture. It helped in the rich cultural milieu of Jesus' day, this helps you understand why they were in places they were in, why they were doing things that they were doing and what the significance of them was. So when we look at Leviticus 12, it's for the purpose of a sketch of the social life of Jewish parents around the time that their children are born. And it will add something to the way that you view Jesus Christ being born. Amen? Are you interested in those kind of things at all? I will throw some Hebrew phrases at you tonight. If you don't remember them, it's okay. I'm going to define them for you. I want to show you a few things and then come to a very practical landing place. How many of you know that when you preach, you ought to know where you're going? Standing behind a pulpit in search of a point only tortures the congregation. We're going somewhere tonight. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm going to get there. In Leviticus 12, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. Now, if we stop there, all of you will think I am weird, and you'll wonder what on earth we could be covering in church but in the Jewish social life, understand something that happens monthly in every household. They call a niddah, N-I-D-D-A-H. Niddah is a Hebrew word that means to separate. You may have heard the joke that there was once a fishing village where all of the women's cycles lined up to the third week of every month, and they discovered that all of the men went fishing on the third week of the month in unison. That also lined up. In the Jewish social life, it is different than our life. To us, these things are intensely personal, and it would embarrass most women for us to sit and talk about their period. But in the Jewish life, there would be no way to hide your period. Your entire household would know that you were having your menstrual cycle and they would know it because dad is not allowed to come into physical contact with you. Not a pat on the back, not a hug, not a kiss on the cheek. If the children sit on something that you sat on, they are considered ceremonially unclean. That could be a little awkward, a little difficult, huh? Every month it was a reminder of something. And after childbirth, the seven days were a reminder of something. God is bringing life right out of death. We originate in a state of sin, and we originate in a state of death. Darkness covered the world, not light. God had to introduce dark, uh, light into the darkness, and it separated. Right out of these time periods comes life. So pregnancy was a special time when you gave birth. And you had a niddah, you had a time of separation of seven days. But this seven days of separation, you got to focus on not that you didn't produce life, but that you did. So when you had a baby, niddah was different than every other time. Could you say it was joyous? 
It was joyous, but it was still difficult. Many of the mechanics were the same, right? What mom is focusing on during Nidda is really separation. Mom is remembering that during this time she is capable of bringing forth both death and life. And for one week she gets to think about, I brought forth a new creation. How many of you look forward to a new week when one week was bad? The eighth day of the Jewish social life is a special time. These seven days of separation give you a perspective. That perspective reminds you that if you're experiencing death today, it could be life tomorrow. That if you're in darkness now, God can bring forth life and you should rejoice when you have life. You should have nothing to do with death and with darkness. The eighth day brings something special. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, say eighth day. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. On the first day that father and mother can hold hands again. On the first day that the daddy and mama can both hold that baby in the air, they do something very special for him. On the day that they come back and they're celebrating, the separation is over. We've gone from death into life. We have the product of a new beginning. Standing in front of us, something very special happens. Keep your finger in Leviticus 12. And then turn with me to Genesis 17. Say there when you were there. If you like, I can give you three points in a poem. Tell you're a champion. Ask you to throw some change in the plate and send you on your way. But if you go to hell and I become more guilty than you for it, what good would that do for us? My very high hope for you is that you'll be educated in the law in the prophets, in the writings, and in the New Testament writings, that you'll understand the life and times of Messiah and imitate it in your own walk, that every detail of the Scripture you would see as an integrated design to teach you the right way to live. Is this your goal? In the 17th chapter of Genesis, we are reading about Abraham, and we're going to start in the first verse. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said... I am God Almighty. If you see your footnote there, just for fun while we're here, and I'll erase it in a minute, the Hebrew for God Almighty is El Shaddai. I'm writing it phonetically because before Sandy Patty sang this song or whoever is singing it here lately, the Hebrews defined it. El is God. She, day is a Hebrew way, a compound way. The word she in Hebrew means who. Day means enough. At a time in Abraham's life where there was difficulty, God appears and says, I am El Shaddai. I am the God who is enough for you. He had just made a terrible mistake with Hagar. He was bearing the fruit of that terrible mistake and we are still dealing with with the fruit of that mistake, but God spoke one message to him simply in his name. I am the God who is enough 
for you. It's the first time in all of the Hebrew Scripture that name appears. The next time it appears, it's to Isaac. And the next time it appears, it's to Jacob. And each time of those first three that it appears, it is immediately after their largest failings in their life. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. The Christian walk has two major components. You are credited with righteousness, but you are told to walk in that righteousness. It is not enough to simply be credited with righteousness. You have to walk in it. Can any of you walk without acting? Can any of you not have action and be walking? Faith without walking is dead. This is why Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. What you believe is what shows up in your daily walk. And if it does not show up in your daily walk, you are self-deceived. You do not believe it. This is the Hebrew concept that is conveyed every time a patriarch walks with God. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. You Pentecostals might say he was slain in the spirit. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. God interjected his spirit into the man's name. The Hebrew letter He symbolizes the Holy Spirit in ancient Hebrew. And from this time forward, what is expected of Abraham and the way that Abraham acts is differently. Can we say that God changed the man's name? We're reading about circumcision right now. And our context is a Jewish sketch of the social life surrounding the birth of children. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. John Kerry doesn't have the right to give away the land. No one in Israel has the right to give away the land. If you want to know how land for peace works, ask, ask Matthew's descendants. They were American Indians, actually his ancestors. Land for peace does not work out well for the indigenous population. God made a covenant with Abraham. And not just with Abraham, with all the people that would come from Abraham. And not just Abraham's descendants, but actually the land itself. And that is God's land. Do you love Israel in this church? If you do not yet love Israel, you simply need to study your word more and you will fall in love with Israel. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. What a difficult request. How old was Abraham? 99 years old. That's, that's, a, that's a tough age to have circumcision. Circumcision... The Hebrews refer to as Brit Malah. 
It literally means covenant of circumcision. During the Brit Malah, this would be on the eighth day of the child's life, as you read in Leviticus 12, something happens. It's the same thing that happened to Abraham. Your male children get a new name. How do we say new name? They're just born. Well, there's the name that you wanted to name them and the name that God tells you to name them in the first eight days. During those eight days, father and mother are separated. Those first seven days, rather. They're supposed to be contemplating their roles as parents. By the time they come together, mom is no longer unclean for father to touch. The family is reunited. And the first thing they do is they name their child. And in naming the child, you are prophesying their function. How many of you know what the name Yeshua means? Yahweh saves. When they named him Yeshua, it was their declaration to the whole world that Yahweh is the Savior of Israel. It was a declaration to the whole world that this child would play a special role, much like Yehoshua had centuries before. That this is the one who would win the battle in the valley. This is the one who would bring Israel into the promised land. When we name our children, we often name them for our dead relatives or our living relatives. There are actually branches of Judaism that forbid that. They say it's a dishonor. When Jews name their children, they name them prophetically for what their child is supposed to become. This is why Judah means the praise of God. This is why each of the tribes of Israel were named what they were named. It was in relation to who they would become. And it tells a story of Jesus. They didn't just get a new name. They also separated this child's body or sanctified this child's body or set this child's body aside for God. When I'm saying this, please consider what this would mean. The first thing that the Jewish parents do after naming their child is say this child's body is in covenant with God. You know, modern Christianity is often the antithesis of this. We say my heart belongs to the Lord, but my body just does what it wants to do. This makes us little better than the animals and certainly far from God. The first step in a Jewish life to seeing your children walk with God was to acknowledge that their very bodies belong to God and mark their bodies with a sign of the covenant. Can somebody say amen? amen? You could be among us and say that you're a believer, but I would ask you what Romans 12 says. Is it true of you? Have you submitted the members of your body to the Lord as a spiritual act of sacrifice? Do you know the will of God because you belong to Him physically as well as spiritually? Or do you believe that you have a spiritual life and a secular life? As long as you divide the two, you will never experience the actual life of God. We worship Him physically and spiritually. We give testimony of Him with our spirit and our body. We honor Him with all our heart 
all of our soul and all of our strength, the three parts of a human being. Somebody say amen in the house of God. When you moved on from the Brit Malah, there would be a time period that is kind of an interesting one. This time period in Hebrew is called the uh, Pidyon Haben. The Pidyon Haben literally translates to the redemption of the firstborn. Jesus was a firstborn in his family. And so, <coughs> mom and dad would have gone through a time period of nidda, a separation where mom is thinking about the fact that sometimes death comes from her body and sometimes life comes from her body, and she would praise God for the new creation. Mom and dad would come together on the eighth day along with the whole family to give their child a new name, the one that God is giving them, and say this child's body belongs to God and they will be in covenant. Then they would enter into the time period of Pidyon Haben. An important note at this point, when you're thinking about this, the mother goes through a time period of purification we're going to read about, and it's not over. Right now, during the Pidyon Haben, she is not able to go to the temple. The redemption of the firstborn was not done by mom, even if you're Catholic. The Pidyon Haben was solely the responsibility of the father. The mother actually had absolutely no role in it. And here's what it began to look like. If you look at Exodus 13, 11 through 15, you see its root in the word. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. The first offspring of every womb in Israel belonged to God. Do you see that there? You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. How many of the firstborn sons had to be redeemed? If they were not redeemed, they were still in death, still in slavery. The Pidyon Haben had to do with the redemption of the firstborn son. But it didn't stop there. It turns out, that in the book of Numbers, in uh, Numbers 8, starting in verse 14, you see that there was a time period where God said, all the firstborn are mine, but the Levites are especially mine. Are you in Numbers 8 in verse 14? In this way, you are to set apart the Levites from the other Israelites, and the Levites will be mine. After you have purified the Levites and presented them as a wave offering, they are to come to do their work at the tent of meeting. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to me. I have taken them as my own in the place of the firstborn. Somebody say, in my place. The first male offspring of every Israelite woman. So every firstborn male had to be redeemed, 
But it turns out that you could substitute a Levite to go work in the temple for your firstborn. Man, how good would the church be if we understood this principle? Have you ever read that a pastor fell into adultery with a secretary? Have you ever read that there was an inappropriate relationship between a minister and somebody in the church? It's because the very basis for their ministry is wrong. The basis for ministry in America is very often that you like what I have to say and you employ me. This is a hireling. I don't work for you. Neither do the other pastors. We work for God. We're actually a gift from God to you and from you back to God. The way that we're supposed to relate to each other is the firstborn in your family was supposed to work for God full time. And since he didn't, somebody had to be a substitute for them. This means when I speak to a woman in the church, I'm either speaking to one that could be considered my mother and me her firstborn son, or one who is my sister. If I speak to a brother in the church, I'm speaking to a sibling. If I speak to an older man in the church, I'm speaking to my father. Did Paul not tell Timothy that very thing? Our relationships are familial, according to the word. They are not hireling. The hireling cares nothing for the sheep, and when he sees the wolf coming, he runs. i got to tell you, if your family is 10,000 members, you might not know them all and might not care about them the same. Perhaps there is wisdom in having a tight-knit family. Can you say amen to that? By the time you get to Numbers 18, go to Numbers 18 with me, we actually have nailed down the time period and the price of a substitution. If the firstborn in your family is not going to go work at the temple, a Levite is going to go in his place, then in Numbers 18, starting in verse 14, we see something. Everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord is yours. The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of the unclean animals. For they are, I'm sorry, when they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver. So you would have to picture that the first week goes by, dad and mom are separate. Then on the eighth day, they get to come back together and the whole family celebrates and you give your child a new prophetic name and you pronounce that his body belongs to the Lord. And then dad would set off alone to go to the temple because mom cannot go yet. And on the 30th day, dad would walk into the temple, say, this is my son. Did a heavenly father speak to an earthly son in the 30th year of his life and say, this is my son? The dad in the temple, the earthly father in the temple, would find a devout priest and he would say, I choose to redeem my son. And he would pay five shekels to the priesthood who were ministering in the son's place. The father would go and speak over the firstborn's redemption. Mom had to sit at home. Come on, ladies, how hard was that? She wanted him redeemed. She wanted him there. But this is the time period in the man's life where he is taking seriously that it is his role, first and foremost, if no one else in this family will do it, the buck stops with me. 
I am responsible for the outcome of my child's life because God made me the priest in this home. Man, would we be better off? We would have no baby daddies in the world. We would only have babies priest in the world who saw their father as the ultimate spiritual authority in their house. Would life be better off? As nice as Mary was, she played no part in the redemption of Jesus. None. His own father, Joseph, had to go to the temple to do that. The first thing that happens is the nidda. The second thing is the brit malah. Then the pidyon haben, the redemption of the firstborn. This brings us back to Leviticus. When you get back to Leviticus in the 12th chapter, we get to the fun part. Verse 3, on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. 33 days. She has to wait 33 days before she's ceremonially clean and go into the temple. What do you think she's doing during that time while the father is taking the son to the temple first? I bet she's taking very seriously her role as a mother. I bet she's taking very seriously her relationship with the Lord. Very often Jews would undergo a mikvah again at this time. They would undergo a, uh, a ritual baptism to get their life and their hearts in order because they were undergoing a supreme task. In fact, didn't God speak to a woman and say that her offspring would crush the serpent's head? Then every Jewish mother hoped that their child would be the one that would do that. How important, how exalted is motherhood? See, moms would bring the redeemers into the world, but there was a divine message that only the father was responsible for the redemption of the Son. This forever defines the role of our Heavenly Father in the church. This forever defines the roles in your house. This forever defines the orders of shalom. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. By the way, if she had seven days of nidda and then she had 33 days of purification, how many days in total did she have? the number of biblical testing, and I bet it was a test. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period, then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. If you would like an explanation of that, tonight I will simply say it is much more complicated to raise daughters than sons. If you would like a more in-depth explanation, you'll have to see me after the service. When the days of her purification for her son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, say, I can't afford it. She is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her. Tone with me to Luke chapter 2. How long was the time period of her purification? Purification 
was 33 days. Have I bored you to death? Are you giving up on me? It's with this background that Luke, the second chapter, begins. And while we're thinking about Luke, the second chapter, pick up with me in the 21st verse. On the eighth day, which day? The day of new beginning, the day of bris malah, the day that he would be named, the day that he would be circumcised, the day that Mary and Joseph could first hold hands after Jesus was born. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew. If you were in northern Israel, it was Yeshu. If you were in southern Israel, it was Yeshua. If you were speaking more ancient Hebrew, you would say Yehoshua. It is the exact same name as Joshua. Who succeeded Moses? Joshua. The first time Joshua appears in all of the Bible is Exodus 17, and it is to defeat the Amalekites as Moses holds up the standards of God. He chose certain men, and he went into the battle, and he won. You want to know what Jesus is? He's the living, breathing, walking Torah of God who shows up on earth to teach you how to win. He didn't change the standards. He didn't move the standard. He didn't move the goalpost. He simply credits you with his victory. Somebody say amen. amen. When it was time to circumcise him, he was named Yeshua. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed. How long was the time period of purification? 33 days. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. What is going on in the background in simply that one sentence is he is lumping together the Nida, the Brit Malah, the uh, Pidyon Habin, and the purification. In reality, it's a total of 40 days. In reality, the father... Could, had to show up in Jerusalem at the temple in day number 30 when the child is 30 days old and mom couldn't be there. But I imagine if they were going to go, they went together. And at the end of her purification, the 33 days, 40 total, is the first time they can go walk into the house of God together. Father, mother, firstborn child, he's named his body is dedicated to the Lord. He's been redeemed as the firstborn. And now we're walking in to see what awaits us. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now is that what the law says? Did the law not say a goat or lamb, and if you cannot afford a goat or lamb, then two young pigeons or two young doves. What does this tell you about Joseph and Mary's state? They were poor. Imagine that it's a normal day in the temple. How many people are born in a nation in a day? I don't know, but more than a handful, huh? Have you ever been to a maternity ward at a full moon? It's incredible. 
They say it's a wives' tale, except it's true. How many people were born in Houston yesterday? How many babies do you think were in that temple that day? 33 days after the purification, 33 days at the end of the purification, I imagine there were a lot of mamas. What would make this poor mother and father stand out? Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Kind of like being blameless and walking with God. Righteous and devout. Are you righteous by your faith in Jesus? Amen. I believe it can be credited to you. But are you devout? Do you walk in the righteousness that's been provided to you? Simeon was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And what's that next phrase say? And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Let's write down some of what was just said about him. The very first thing was that he was prepared in the sight of how many people? In the sight of all people. The word people there is ethne, it's nations. I want you to understand something. God wants his plan not to be carried out in some little corner, not to be hidden in a church somewhere, he wants it in the plain sight of all human beings. He did not announce salvation in a corner. He told the first man and the first woman the way that it would happen. And in every generation, there's been a witness since. There is nothing about the church that is a private or, hear this, secret matter. If you've been told that the coming of the Lord will be some kind of secret, the first coming wasn't. And the second coming won't either be. It's in the sight of all people. Secondly, it would be a revelation to who? Gentiles means nations. It's everybody, not Israel. Have you ever read something and not understood it? Anybody in here ever read something and not understood it? It'd be done in plain sight right before you, but it takes you and I a revelation to get it. You know why? This is not our culture. This is not our custom. We're foreigners to it, aliens and outsiders. It was a mystery that we could be included, but praise God, we can be included. By the way, we're going to do seven of these. Who would it be glory for? Glory to Israel. 
If you don't see Jesus Christ as glory to Israel yet, then his ministry has not been completed. Jesus would cause When's the last time you heard this preach? Jesus would cause the falling of many. Do you see that written in your word? He didn't say the rising and falling. He said the falling and rising. The first reaction that most have, and hear me, the vast majority have, is that Jesus' words actually bring about the realization of their destruction. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Woe unto the popular gospel. Woe unto the popular preacher. The very first thing that was said about Jesus is that he would cause the falling of many. Not just in Israel, everywhere. What God does, he does in plain sight of everyone, but it takes us a revelation to understand it, and most don't want that. Most do not want to be spiritually led. The fifth one, Jesus would cause the rising of many. The same word is death to some and life to others. The same budget to some is restriction and others is freeing. The same word offends some and encourages others. Understand that Jesus was not supposed to leave you in the middle. The very nature of His mission would push you either to falling or to rising, but no one would be left in the middle. If you're indifferent about Jesus, you've not encountered Him. You either love Him or you hate Him. And everyone who claims, well, I've pretty well loved Him all of my life, let's look and see what your actions say about that. It's an easy thing to say. But ladies, if your husband says, hey, I've loved her our whole marriage, but he beats you when he sees you, and most of the time you don't see him, do you believe him? Do we think God's not as smart as you? The way you feel about him shows up in the way you act towards him. That is the truth. How many of you have invited many people to church and they said, I'll come? How many of you have done that? You can speak. You find out then that people promise things that they never actually do. They feel better in making the promise. Their words actually cause a falling. You know why? Because they will be played back in condemnation of them. You understand that God doesn't hold anyone guiltless who makes a vow? You understand that? The kingdom is a serious matter. Jesus would cause the falling and the rising of some. The sixth one, he would be spoken against. When you think of Jesus being spoken against, understand that the way that Jesus is presented in most places, nobody would speak against him. This is why everyone says, oh, all religions are pretty much the same. This is why people can say the three great religions, they've never examined the Christ. Jesus offended almost every person he ever came into contact with. And even to his closest friends. He said, do you want to leave too? He never begged anybody to follow him. He was destined to be spoken against. 
He didn't give away gift certificates and lifetime membership to the Jelly of the Month Club if you would follow him like churches do today. Let me ask you, the Jesus that you know, is he spoken against or does everyone pretty well say they love him? They don't know him. You need to put, him, put people on a radical collision course with the real Jesus so they will know whether or not they love him or hate him, but nobody will ever be left in the middle. I have got lots of family that is fond of saying they love Jesus until I talk about the things that Jesus says and then they hate me and they hate his word. Jesus will be spoken against. This is the prophecy. What an amazing, insightful prophecy. The seventh one. We didn't read this, so let's read it. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to who? Mary, his mother, the one who had just finished her 33 days of purification. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that would be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. One of the most difficult things about loving Jesus is those who love him the most have a sword pierce them as well. How did you feel when you saw Passion of the Christ? Were you entertained? Did you grab your popcorn? Did you sit down with some juju fruits and junior mints and just have a little party while you watched the crucifixion of the Christ? Those who love Him were crushed by what they saw because it made us think about that. If you don't love Him, it doesn't pierce you. Are you pierced when Jesus is spoken against? Does it break your heart? Because I'll tell you what, don't think you're going to sit in my house and slander my wife. I love her. I would never tolerate that. Why is it okay with us when people speak ill of our Jesus or attribute to him things that are not true? Could it be that we don't love him enough? Mary was told on the last day of her purification, his ministry is going to pierce your heart. What an interesting thing. Let's walk back through some of this. In the Nidda, a separation time to give you perspective. Let me ask you. Are you bringing forth death or life? We're all capable of both. Today, did you extend more death into people or did you extend more life into people? When you're thinking about the Brit Malah, is your body set apart for God or do you say religion is a private heart matter? Because it certainly can't begin and end in your heart. When you're thinking also about the Brit Malah, has God shown you your function? Are you walking around claiming that you belong to him but never took the time to figure out even what you were supposed to be doing? How can pastors, apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists prepare you for your works of service if you don't believe you have one? 
How can you do the work prepared in advance for you to do if you don't believe that you have it and don't know what it is? You were never supposed to get more than eight days into the kingdom before this became your sole obsession. Let me ask you about the Pidyon Habin, the redemption of the firstborn. When did your slavery stop? We're being told all of the time that Christians can still be slaves to sin. But the reality is in the first month of your Christianity, your father was supposed to set you free in a way that only he could do. Church membership wouldn't do it. Hanging out with mama wouldn't do it. It would have to come as a divine work from your father and you would know that you had been redeemed. One of the ways that you knew it is you were not a slave to sin or to death. So let me ask, when you were redeemed, did your father also pay a price to make you a priest? Or do you just sit in a pew, sit in a chair saying, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed, but you were never made a priest? Because at the redemption of the firstborn, while you may not work in the temple, a price was paid for you to work for God and you would be a nation of priests. Let me ask you one more question. Why is it that in the 33rd day of purification, a man named Simeon could look at a baby who walked in with poor parents and tell you, this has been done in the sight of all people. He'll be a revelation to all nations and glory to Israel. This baby will cause the falling and the rising of many. He'll be spoken against and be a sword that pierces hearts. After meeting him for minutes in the 33rd day of his life and in the 33rd year of his life, those that had read about him their whole lives didn't recognize him. While you're thinking on the difference between 33 days and 33 years, let me read to you from John 5. In John 5, starting in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You bet he did. He did it on the 30th day through an earthly father and he did it on the 30th year through his heavenly father. He spoke from the heavens and said, This is my son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. In three unique statements about the son of God from the heavens, he quotes Psalm 2-7. The son who is supposed to rule the nations. With him I am well pleased. He quotes Isaiah about the servant of the Lord who would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. With listen to him. He quotes from the law of God in Deuteronomy 18.15, the prophet that you must listen to. In one sentence, the father affirmed him in the law, in the prophets, in the writings. This is my son who brings redemption. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. 
For you do not believe the one He sent. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me. Yet, you refuse to come to Me to have life. It seems that you can spend 33 years in religion and not recognize God when He's standing in front of you. You go to church, good. You say you love the Lord, pat on the back there too. Israel said all of the same things. What was different between 33 days and 33 years? Back in the second chapter of Luke, you find... The answer in just a few verses. In verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple. I want you to understand that you can sit in church all of your life, but that doesn't mean you have ever been moved by God's Spirit. But when you are moved by His Spirit... When you are led by Him, the 8th chapter of Romans says as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. You cannot be born again by attending a church. You cannot be born again simply by reading Scriptures. You cannot go through 33 years of purification and arrive at it. But in only 33 days, if the Holy Spirit is invited to have dominion in your heart, it will show up because He will bring you to Jesus. Isn't it amazing people can say they love Jesus, but resist the moving of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John seven thirty-seven, And then I'm going to finish the Acts homework for you. I really do want you to succeed in our classes. And if you don't, it will be because you didn't want to. In John 7, look at verse 37. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Church Anna had been married and her husband had died. And she was now in her 80s in the temple. Worshiping God day and night. Simeon had spent his life in the temple. He was now old. And the one thing that he wanted was not a longer life. It was not a prosperous future. It was not a bigger house. The one thing that he wanted was to see salvation with his eyes. 
What are you thirsty for? What are you hungry for? Because if you get thirsty for the Holy Ghost, He can do in 33 minutes what you could not do in 33 years. What is it about us that we can see the medicine and the disease pushes us in the other direction? The one thing that we need is the easiest for us to get. You don't need more television. You don't need more food. You don't need more entertainment. You don't need more stuff. When your friends die, when life becomes difficult, all of that is a smokescreen. You need to drink of His Spirit. Why did they miss for 33 years what Simeon and Anna saw in less than 33 days? Because they were not hungry for the moving of God's Holy Spirit, what are you hungry for? Turn with me to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. The pastors in your congregation are flawed beyond belief. I don't know if I would follow us. But all of those flaws lead to one thing, a total dependence upon the Lord. And I can tell you this, when we haven't slept, when our bodies are tired, when we did more construction than people who are in the construction business, we know what it is to pull over on the side of Interstate 45 and command life into our friends because we know the Spirit of God. We know what it is to carry around death in our bodies that life might also be in our bodies. Consider that there wasn't a thing about Joseph or Mary that was different from every other Israelite that showed up that day except maybe they were poorer than most. But we look for exceptional human beings to follow. You need to find the most ordinary, base human beings you can that are filled with an extraordinary power from God. I don't stand before you today and appeal to you based on my academic credentials. I don't stand in here today and say because I can articulate things, you should listen. I stand in here based on the Spirit of God and say He will fill you because He filled me. We've stood all over the world on that one testimony and we have never been ashamed of our Christ. In the seventh chapter of Acts, if you were to say, outline the seventh chapter of Acts, you might come up with many topics, but as you were looking at the topics, you see they're pointing in a direction of habitual behavior and pointing to maybe, say, the 44th verse. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that we might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built 
the house for him. What a strange thing to say on the last moments of your life. Maybe the last 33 minutes of his life. What is he talking about? Why a history lesson? There was a tabernacle that represented God's presence. And the people had it. They were there. There was a temple that represented God's presence. And the people had it. And they were there. But when an ordinary human being showed up, and he was filled with the presence of God and declared with the power of God to be the Messiah. They couldn't receive it. Something about man craves religion and rejects and refuses the leading of the Spirit. Something about us wants routine and religion and ritual. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Where was Stephen going with his message before they interrupted him with flying rocks? They had no problem following brick and mortar religion. They had no problem honoring the, the moving of God in yesteryear. But when stand facing the moving of the Holy Spirit as it directly affected them in that moment, they refused to come and have life. Instead, a murderous spirit erupts out of them. How important is the baptism in the Holy Ghost? How important is the daily drinking of the Spirit of God? How important is it? It's the difference between 33 days and 33 years. You will never in your own strength ever accomplish anything. But if you get filled with God's presence, then you could look at a couple poor Jews as common as the other thousands that filled the temple. And you could be an old man in the last moments of your life and give the most accurate prophecy about Jesus and identify Him in moments of seeing Him because the Holy Ghost was upon you. You could be a broken down old woman and prophesy the truth about the Messiah. What is the difference between a 33-year religion or a 33-day religion? The Spirit of God is everything. So I'm asking you, congregation, on what are you depending? Because it is going to get tough in this nation is going to get tough in this congregation, is going to get tough in your own households. The Christ, He will be spoken against. The Christ, He will cause the falling and the rising of many. He will bring glory to Israel, whether the other nations know it or not. And He'll be a revelation to every nation on the planet. And His work will be done in the plain sight of all. But it'll be hidden in ordinary men that are Jars of clay filled with treasure. Could you all stand to your feet? The question then remains for you.
whether you take 33 minutes, 33 days, or 33 years, what does your time period of purification look like? What will it take for you to accomplish the will of God in your life? Are you full already? Have you had all you want already? Or could it be that you need a time period of separation from the world to consider that you're capable of both death and life? Could it be that you need God to affirm to you your new function and rededicate your body to God? Could it be that you've had the redemption of the firstborn but you've never walked as a priest? Could it be that you need the Holy Ghost to be upon you at the end of your time period of purification? Friends, I'm going to tell you it's our only hope. We will never survive without the full measure of the Spirit. 